Now, there was a much larger study of those women, women and men between the age of 17 and 34 who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. You look at their coronary arteries, coronary disease is now ubiquitous. Everybody. So you graduate from high school in this country and you've already got heart disease. So when you say, wouldn't I like to get a test to know, well, let's just put it this way. If you're over 17 and you've been eating less, you, we, you know, we know you're loaded with disease. Not enough for your cardiac event yet. But as you continue to eat this way, now in your 40s and 50s, 60s and so forth, now you'll start to have the clinical cardiac events, stroke, heart attack, leg disease, from what? From a disease that you've been nurturing and growing since you were a child. Hi there, Veggie Mates. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you all. You just heard from this week's very special guest, Dr. Coldwell Esselstyn Jr. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and you are tuning in to the Veg Talk podcast. Welcome to or welcome back to the show if this is your first time listening in. It's great to be with you all again for another conversation. I'm coming to you from the Los Padres National Forest in California. Anna and I are stoked to be seeing the sun again after what felt like a month of overcast days with regular rain. So our solar panel is back to 100%. We are slowly making our way down to Los Angeles where Anna takes off for a week to Miami and the Bahamas and I'll be hanging out in Los Angeles January 1 through 5 and then hopefully a short stint in Arizona where I might have some more special guests for you and then making our way down to Mexico. Now to this week's special guest. So it's an absolute cracker, jam-packed with helpful information from one of the pioneers of the whole food plant-based movement, Dr. Coldwell Esselstyn Jr. Best known for his work preventing and reversing heart disease through whole food plant-based nutrition, Dr. Esselstyn, with the help of his amazing wife, Anne, has tirelessly worked as a cardiac surgeon and leader in this movement for decades. We spent the morning at their place in Ohio. It happened to be the day after Thanksgiving here in the States. So a massive shout out to both Anne and Essie for giving up their time. We recorded the pod and had a delicious lunch, which Anne prepared for us. Not only are these two incredible leaders in the plant-based movement, but also two awesome humans. They're so willing to help. I hope you enjoy the show and we'll see you all on the other side. Yes, we do have quite the quite the handsome group here today. And the man I'm speaking with today does not need any introduction. Okay. He is the or one of the pioneers, I believe, uh, of the whole plant-based movement. And his name is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. And thank you so much for joining me today, the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, so I do appreciate your time. Matthew, no, pleasure to be with you. Awesome, awesome. So yes, you personally, along with T. Colin Campbell, are really the reason I decided to go vegan or whole food plant-based, whichever you, you know, you'd prefer to call it. But basically, I mentioned it in my introduction episode to everyone that, yeah, I saw two men that were in their 80s and they were frequently running and riding every day. They were healthy. They had their brain health, their heart health, physical health was all there and I couldn't believe it because you know my experience with old age was nursing homes and I suppose early death so thank you very much for yeah all the work you've done and for changing my perception uh, of you know of what kind of life I can have by just making a 
a few changes on the plate, which hasn't really been that difficult for us in, in you know in the end. So I suppose before all the the whole food plant based stuff came to be, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background and where you grew up and and what it was like growing up where where you were. Well, I grew up on an Aberdeen Angus beef farm in upstate New York, and uh, it was a pretty much an established cholesterol holic <laughs> from uh, eating all that animal protein. And uh, after I uh, went to uh, Yale University as an undergraduate, I went to medical school at um, Case Western Reserve. Actually, it was Western Reserve University School of Medicine uh, in Cleveland. And it was uh, interesting that when I took an, an internship at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, I made a decision that I would want to be a surgeon. That was the way you got things done. You fixed those hernias, you took care of the bowel obstruction, you took care of all those tumors, and that was, uh, was going to be the answer to, to health, uh, doing surgery. So after I finished my surgical training at the clinic, I spent uh, two years in the Army, the first year at Fort Bragg, as a surgeon, and then the second year I was a combat surgeon in Vietnam. And then when I came back to civilization, I was I was asked to join the staff of the Cleveland Clinic in the Department of General Surgery, which I was proud and happy to do so. And it was probably by the late 1970s, early 80s, that I began to become increasingly disillusioned in my responsibility at the clinic as chairman of the Breast Cancer Task Force. It was so uh, challenging to think that no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery for, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim, which led to a bit of global research, and it was quite apparent that uh, there were breast cancer rates in some cultures which were 30 and 40 times less frequent than they were in the uh, United States, for example, Kenya. And in, uh, rural, in rural Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, still pure Japanese-American, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. And perhaps even more uh, compelling and more powerful was cancer of the prostate, for example, in... Uh, in 1958, in the entire nation of Japan, how many autopsy-proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? 18. Probably the most mind-boggling public health figure I've ever encountered. Yet by 1978, 20 years later, in Japan, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year from prostate cancer in this country. So... Uh, along about that particular juncture in this uh, voyage that I was on, it became perhaps increasingly apparent that there would be more bang for the buck if I could look at the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, which was uh, coronary artery heart disease, because in this global review, I was constantly encountering cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And I guess the dream became, if you could persuade people to eat 
in a manner to save themselves from getting heart disease. They would also markedly diminish the likelihood of them acquiring the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and perhaps uh, pancreatic. So with that as the background, uh, it became apparent that, that before I was going to do a study on this, which I was determined to do, I wanted to take patients seriously ill with heart disease and see if we couldn't get them to eat plant-based nutrition and lower their cholesterol and their hypertension, their diabetes and their risk factors, and uh, maybe we could stop the progression of this disease, perhaps even reverse it. So the first thing we did was that, uh, and I never could have done this without my wife, uh, Anne, who was so uh, uh, loyal and supportive in this effort, because we did it for a year uh, before I ever went to the Department of Cardiology to ask for these 24 patients. It was a small study. Um, it was a small study because here I was still with my surgical obligations, and uh, uh, at the same time, these 24 patients were really quite sick. As my late brother-in-law used to say that these were Essie's walking dead. <laughs> uh, they had failed their first or second bypass. They had failed their first or second angioplasty. They were too sick for these procedures or they had refused. Five were told by their expert cardiologist they wouldn't live out the year. And in following those five in particular, they made it up to 20 years, which was interesting. So that uh, became sort of the background. And when I retired uh, from surgery in, uh, in 2000, I was really rather uh, reluctant to let this go because we had had absolutely such profound results from these patients who were so sick, uh, they got rid of their extra weight, they got rid of their chest pain and their angina, and when we carefully studied them, they were reversing their disease. And that was really uh, rarely ever seen, although Ornish uh, does, had also, four years prior to our study, uh, we didn't even know about each other, but we were sort of independently doing this, and I have great admiration and respect for what he accomplished. And it was n nice to, to think that uh, there were really several independent studies out there that had come to the same, <laughs> same powerful conclusion. But uh, when you think about it, though, there's a lot of resistance to this because, um, in a way, since we now know that patients who are offered an elective stent or an elective bypass, that if they really go full-bore plant-based nutrition, the likelihood of their needing that intervention is unlikely. And that was, uh, there's no question that I think it's established that if you're in the middle of a heart attack, a stent or a bypass can be absolutely life-saving. However, uh, when it's not an emergency, when it's elective, the data are clear that there is no prolongation of life and there's no protection from a future heart attack. So, And it probably costs Oh well, this a little <laughs> you know, bit. If you, yeah, if you save four patients uh, in a company from having bypass, you save them probably close to a million dollars. And that's, I mean, the financial aspect can be crippling for some people. Oh, yeah. 
if what what is the other choice so if if we're not choosing elective surgery to you know as the choice you said it's not prolonging life but people are often electing for that type of surgery your whole problem with that surgery is that uh electively is see the veins that they take from the leg to put on as a bypass they never last they always eventually will fail and obviously this puts the patient in further jeopardy uh some of them will fail and 12 to 15 months, uh, others will uh, make it maybe to 5, 10, or 8 years. Uh, but if these patients are offered uh, plant-based nutrition, what you are addressing here basically is the, uh, the causation of illness. And I think this is why our results have been so exciting and so stunning. Because when the we took such a beating on our first study because everybody said it was not randomized, it was small, and that uh, that the nutrition that we were using was rather ex- extreme, uh, draconian, severe. And I said, well, wait a minute. I, I think that's the, appli- the those are the terms that apply to the diet that 97% of Americans are eating because it guarantees that they will have some horrible chronic illness before they perish. And uh, really, the... Uh, uh, the, the nutrition that we're suggesting is very little different from that which is in the ha- one half of the planet which doesn't have any heart disease. So it's a it's pretty exciting from that from that standpoint. And we so we were more or less forced into uh, doing a second study, which we were delighted to do. And and this wasn't twenty five patients. This was now some. Uh, 200 patients who almost were self-selected. They simply found us. They came with their heart disease. We followed them up to close to four years. And uh, they were adherent. And uh, it was 90% what we found were following the program. And the results were really quite striking because uh, in the close to four years of follow-up, when you looked at serious uh, major cardiac events such as heart attack, stroke, and death. In the group that were compliant, the 177, uh, there was one stroke, a uh, small stroke in a gentleman who was unfortunately misbehaving when he was in China where this occurred, but he uh, got over that. But the other uh, 21 patients who were non-compliant, uh, 62% in that four close to four-year follow-up had further uh, progression of their disease. And it was really uh, exciting to kind of compare our results to all the other major uh, studies that are out there. And there's over a 30-fold difference. We had one uh, event, and of course they they had usually between 20 and 25% events at four years. And the reason being is that when I speak about causation, when you think about it historically, there's been a, almost a covenant of trust between the caregiver and the patient that whenever possible, the caregiver is going to share with the patient what is the causation of the illness. And sadly today in cardiovascular medicine, that's not being done, although I'm proud to say that I have joined with others when three years ago I was invited by the American College of Cardiology 
to become a member. They wanted me to join their nutrition committee, which I've been happy and proud to do. And that nutrition committee is trying to educate the cardiovascular community as to the power of whole food plant-based nutrition. In other words, show them how to treat the causation of the illness that they have been designated to treat. It's amazing. It's a really cool cool story. I think it's it's an interesting um, evolution because as you kind of alluded to, there has been pushback. You know, you've you've stuck to your guns from, you know, a very early stage and continued to research, continued to, to help patients. But what kind of pushback do you get? You know, the results are profound. They're, they're clear. But what kind of pushback have you got along the way? Oh, it's the usual. Uh, study still isn't big enough. It wasn't randomized, wasn't prospective. And, uh, but I think it, if we really want to stick with the scientific method, this is what a recent Nobel laureate had to say about the scientific method. He said, what you do is you propose a theory with the scientific method, and then you do the experiment. And the experiment is either right or it's wrong. And it doesn't depend upon the amount of money that's involved. It doesn't depend upon the personality or the, the ego of the investigator. The experiment is either right or wrong. So if we propose a theory that we can halt heart disease and perhaps reverse it, and then you do it once, and you do it twice, and you do it three, four, five, hundreds of times, then <laughs> you've, you've fairly, have fulfilled the scientific method. And uh, it's interesting, though, now that even at our uh, monthly conference that I conduct, uh, we have any number of uh, physicians who attend because they want to really learn more about how we can do this. And at the same time, we have had a number of uh, physicians who have come to us when they've had a heart attack. So I think that pretty well spells it out. Right, so the, the trust between the caregiver and the patient, right? We do often, you know, go into the doctor's room and take everything that they're, they're telling us as, you know, it's the right thing for us to, to undertake. We're going we're gonna to listen to them and we're going to carry out exactly what they've told us. When it comes to nutrition, where is the downfall? Why, why are we not... Well, no, no physicians really are learning about nutrition. The medical schools are still largely being run by, sadly, the, perhaps the pharmaceutical industry is in there with a bigger uh, bundle than you'd like. And it's, it's very few medical schools can be proud about the nutrition that they've just... Because, you see, it's not only heart disease. That what, what do we see so often in our patients that disappears when they start eating to save their heart? Away goes their obesity. Away goes their diabetes. Away goes their hypertension. Away goes their risk for strokes. Away goes the risk for vascular dementia. And there's so many other illnesses now that we see that will be vanquished with this, such as Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, allergies and asthma, and the list goes on and on. 
Never before has medicine had in its toolbox something that is so powerful, so safe, and so enduring, and so good for the planet. No, it's it, it's unbelievably how it's unbelievable how simple it is. You know, where do you think we're overthinking it? When you know, when people like yourself, uh, you know, showing amazing results, and the answer is in the grocery store. You know, that, that's where it is. It's in the produce section. It happens in the kitchen. Sure, exercise is going to, you know, be paired with with a whole food, plant based diet in uh, in terms of uh, prolonging health. But do you think we're overcomplicating it and we overthink it? And it's no, too I, I don't. I think it's. I think it's what's see the the thing that's going to make this happen. Uh, really, is increasingly is not going to be snake oil or hype. No, it's got to be science, and that's what we're seeing uh, more and more of, which is the way it really has to be, and uh, because that's, I think, what is going to bring people around. It's going to bring the, the government around. It's going to bring private industry around. I mean, uh, it's really going to be quite exciting to think that. I guess the reason that I find myself so passionate and exciting about the field of medicine uh, as, as I've ever been uh, is that I really feel that we're on the cusp, the cusp of what could be a seismic revolution in health. And that seismic revolution is never going to come about through another pill or another drug or another procedure or another operation. The seismic revolution that is at our fingertips is going to come about when we in the profession have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle and most specifically what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them as the, as the locus of control to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. Yeah, it's really, it's the, the power to do this is within our own hands. It's, it's something we can take control of. So if someone does come to you, let's, let's do an example of someone coming to you with quite severe um, heart disease, but they're choosing to come around and to go the whole food plant-based route. What do you then say to them in terms of you know, what foods to, to look for, what foods to avoid? Um, and what exercise to, to start out with if they are in a, you know, a serious condition? Yeah, I think that first of all, you, you have to show them respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them our time. And which is why when many people say, well, Dr. Esselstyn, I understand that what you've accomplished, and I understand your uh, disease reversal, but I can't get any of my patients to do this. Well, it's not that the message is wrong. It's how the message is articulated. And if you're going to try to have somebody make a lifestyle change in a 10 or 15-minute office visit without the spouse or the significant other, you're dreaming. That isn't going to yeah. happen. Yeah. You've, yeah. Got to, you've really got to show the patient respect. And what, what I find is so powerful where I think we really throw the hook with these patients is there are there are two scientific concepts that I want them to absolutely get their arms around and fully grasp. They have to understand that all experts in this disease will agree on this point 
that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure that delicate innermost lining of the artery called the endothelium. And what makes the endothelium so remarkable is the magic molecule of gas, nitric oxide, which it produces, which is responsible for the protection and the salvation of all of our blood vessels because of its remarkable functions. For example, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. It keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate. That's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thickened, stiff, or inflamed, protects you from getting high blood pressure, hypertension. Number four, a safe and adequate amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing any blockages or plaque. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth who has cardiovascular disease, whether they're from London, Berlin, Chicago, New York, or Cleveland, Ohio, if they have cardiovascular disease, it is because by now, in the preceding decades, they have so seriously trashed, injured, and turned their endothelial system into a train wreck, they simply don't have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making blockages and plaque. However, the good news here is this. Once you can get these patients to understand what are the foods that never again are to pass their lips and are responsible for injuring the endothelium, then the endothelium can recover, make enough nitric oxide so not only is the disease progression halted, but we often see elements of disease reversal. Now, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips you injure the endothelium? They are, one, any drop of oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures endothelial cells, as does anything with a mother or a face. Meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs, and anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt, and sugary drinks. Diet colas, Pepsis, Coke, and sugary foods. Excesses of cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And for the patients who have heart disease, I don't like coffee with caffeine. Decaf, yes. Tea with caffeine, yes. Black tea, green tea. But coffee with caffeine, I don't like. What's the difference between the, the tea caffeine and the coffee caffeine? I don't know, but I, as far as I understand... It's the uh, coffee with caffeine that every time you drink it, you injure the endothelial cell. Wow. Just had a coffee moments ago. So that's interesting. That's interesting because I have also heard that um, you might be familiar with the blue zones, that the longest-lived populations on planet Earth do have coffee as like a common ground between mm-hmm. between those mm-hmm. blue zones. So yeah, so if they're, if they're eating plant-based all, all the rest of the time 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose we're not going to point out one thing and say yeah, that's... No, you, uh, can't, yeah, yeah. You, you can't say somebody had a cup of coffee and had heart disease. Right. No. Yep. No, I think I've got that too far under a microscope yeah. there. But, um, okay. Very, very helpful. So, these foods are... Com- like, these... Um, you know, oils and, and, and sugary foods are, are very common in in restaurants, um, obviously packaged food. Does this mean that, you know, we, sh- we really need to get back in the kitchen ourselves, take control of, of what we're eating and, and know what we're eating? Well, how it, how it eventually uh, plays out, in what format, uh, there are multiple ones that I think. The first thing is most important is that people become educated and aware of this. And where that education should really start is in our schools. I mean, when you think of the, 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 how horrible uh, the school lunches are uh, mm-hmm. right now, it's, uh, it's almost inexcusable, but again, that's where politics and there's enormous conflict. Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, the government is really working against us. When you think about the fact that the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, every five years makes this plate, uh, with food recommendations, and who do you suppose are the officers in the USDA? They've previously all been an officer of the Cattlemen's Association, the Dairy Association, the Pork Board, the Egg Board, and so forth. So it's uh, it's really a, a guarantee that if you eat, you know, if your comp- if your nation eats the plate that is prepared for the USDA, it's a guarantee that millions will continue to perish from that plate. Mm. And the other yeah. thing, of course, is the industry itself. For instance, when you think there's a $30 billion statin drug industry out there today, how much? Uh, how many of those people would like to see this epidemic go away? Right, there. What about my, even my, my own uh, colleagues who are making a living on doing bypass surgery and stents, uh, how many of them are clamoring for fewer and fewer patients? Yeah, the whole system is really working against Mm -hmm. health and from multiple angles. It is really tough, um, especially with the money that industry has to offer, I suppose. Um, Giving these people, you know, the opportunity to to live off bad health basically they're making a living off the bad health of of the country and other countries around the world it's not just the united states so how do we go about fixing that that's that seems like quite uh you know a large uphill battle against industry do we just keep working the message it has to be science look at look what happened the cigarettes i think it went from 40 million when the word finally came out, it got down to 20 million. That's, that's a lot of public that got the message. And the fact that you no longer can smoke in an airport, you no longer can smoke in many civic buildings. There are many places where if they're savvy at all, smoking is prohibited, you can't smoke. I can remember when we used to ride in airplanes and there was a, <laughs> there was a division in the front and <laughs> the back for which you could smoke and it was, if, I mean, it, come on, everybody was, getting exposed when you think about mm. it it's just crazy so uh you know the pendulum has certainly swung in this in the way of uh, uh of smoking and it certainly can has done it in the way of uh, seat belts when seat, seat belts first came out people complained my goodness i never wear one of the suppose i drive my cow 
my car into a canal. I wouldn't be able to get out in time. I would save myself from drowning. Well, I guess not that many people have driven their cars into canals. And really now people would, uh, wouldn't really think about riding in a car without buckling up because of, uh, the, of the safety measures that it offers. And I just think that the, the public is savvy enough that when you really give them an opportunity to get exposed to it, how many people would want to say, I really love enjoying this, these stakes because I'm looking forward to having my first heart attack in my 50s. And then I'll, uh, after that I'll get uh, a couple of strokes and maybe drift into, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll drift into my 80s with severe dementia. Sounds horrible. Yeah, it's just terrible. The, all, you know, the, the jokes aside, I suppose, when you put it into those logical words, that's exactly what we're doing as a society. We're eating our own, eating our, or digging our own grave with our, with our fork and knife. Do you think people have uh, trouble taking responsibility or, or is it purely the knowledge, just the lack of no, knowledge? No, I think if, if, for instance, if we had a simple test for nitric oxide in the office <clears throat> and people would recognize how low their level of nitric oxide was, their protection was down, I think that is something that would really help us to turn it around if we got a simpler test for nitric oxide because then somebody said, geez, you know, if, if I'm really knocking at, knocking at the door if I've uh, got this low level. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's education that uh, is going to get the job done. There was no simple test with a seatbelt or with the smoking that they did. It was just simply that finally the data became so powerful, so overwhelming, that it was very difficult to refute uh, the damage that was going to be done. And I think that now we, uh, uh, the medical scientific community is sophisticated enough in its knowledge about uh, nutrition that you just can't stoke yourself with any food at all. Uh, you have to be very uh, careful because there are just these constant everyday injuries that you are in inflicting on yourself when you're eating incorrectly. And the other hand, that uh, it never does seem to be too late. My oldest patient is now 97, and I've been with him 10 years when he was, and he refused surgery, and he's absolutely up and about and active, and it's very exciting. So it never really seems to be too late to get started if people are willing to make this significant lifestyle change. That's amazing. So at 87, yeah. he's been eating, would you say... Typical trash. Typical, typical trash up to the age of 87. Yeah. Makes filled, the change. But filled, but filled with heart disease. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That really is incredible. You know, I think when, when we think well, a lot of, of people uh, maybe eating that trash won't make it to 87. The trash will mm. have killed them, killed them and that's, before that's, then. That's also true. I mean, we're seeing heart attacks younger and younger. Yeah. Uh, I think some men in their... Even their 30s and 40s. Oh, yeah. We just had a physician that I saw last week who in his 30s had his first heart attack. Yeah, that's really hard to believe. I think everything is just... Not overweight. No, no. No, not overweight, but just eating all the horrible stuff. And I think that's where me personally, I had the disconnection. Oh, I'm thin. Mm -hmm. I'll be fine. You don't... Those injuries that you're talking about that we're inflicting on ourselves uh, daily, we don't see them. 
that's just because we don't see them obviously doesn't mean that they're not occurring so i think that's uh, the visual aspect of not not being Mm -hmm. able to see those injuries is is also playing a part in in our ignorance uh, to what's really going Mm on what can what can we do now what is available to us to you know get a you know a um I suppose an insight into into our actual heart health. Is there a way that we can check to see if we're in you know in a good position? Are there indicators? Well, let's just do, do this first of all before you be, begin making everybody get a test because that does what that does is every time you get imaging and all these tests, they're mm-hmm. enormously expensive, mm-hmm. and suddenly this that this skyrockets the, the health cost. Okay. Why don't we get people to be aware of the fact that if they are eating? this Western diet, which is so bad for us. Let's look at some of the data. Now, we know that with a mother who's eating this way, even a baby in utero already gets the fatty streaking on its arteries. Sadly, if 12-year-olds die of accidents, homicides, suicides, and you autopsy 12-year-olds, they've already got the early, thick, fatty streaking in their blood vessels that's happening. Now, there was a much larger study of those Women, women and men between the age of 17 and 34 who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. You look at their coronary arteries, coronary disease is now ubiquitous, everybody. So you graduate from high school in this country and you've already got heart disease. So when you say, wouldn't I like to get a test to know, well, let's just put it this way. If you're over 17 and you've been eating less, you, we, we know you're loaded with disease, not enough for your cardiac event yet. Mm-hmm. But as you continue to eat this way, now in your 40s and 50s, 60s, and so forth, now you'll start to have the clinical cardiac events, stroke, heart attack, leg disease, from what? From a disease that you've been nurturing and growing since you were a child. And this is just from consistent... So when you say the trash, we are talking about the animal protein, yeah. the dairy. Yeah. And it's just the consistency mm-hmm. of... And the oil. Yeah, and the oil. The consistency of eating those is just slowly chipping away at our arteries. Yeah. We're growing plaques. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the event might not happen when you're 17, but you are putting yourself in a pretty good position to have one of those events later in life. But you can turn it around so fast by doing it right. And what is it in the foods that reverses... Because this is really what... I don't think it's so much what, it, although there are, the plant-based foods have much more in the weight of what we call phytonutrients mm-hmm. and polyphenolic compounds, all these ant- natural antioxidants that are, and there are thousands that we haven't even identified yet. Those are the benefits, but most of all, you take away the harm. And the harm that you see with the oil and animal protein is where it all starts with what we talked about earlier which is that delicate endothelium. Remember I said all experts would agree that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning is when we progressively injure the delicate innermost lining. And it's the animal foods, the oil, sugars, and so forth. Those are the ones that injure the endothelial lining. Once you have injured your endothelial fortress now, things like bad cholesterol can migrate through into the sub endothelial layer, set up housekeeping and begin this nasty process of, of uh, oxidative inflammation, 
and plaque formation that leads to this, these vascular events. Got it. And an industry that I'm not really involved with myself, but Anna certainly has been, is the, the fitness and health industry. You also were an athlete. I believe you had some success as an Olympian in my hometown in Melbourne, Ballarat. Melbourne, Australia. Oh, you were in Ballarat. That's where the races were. Wow. Didn't know that. Melbourne Olympics, 1956. I know that much. Yeah. Uh, you won a gold medal mm-hmm. um, in, in the rowing. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, that in and of itself is, is a really cool story that you are a gold medalist, an Olympian. Um, yeah, but back to the fitness and health industry, I'm not sure what it was like then in terms of what nutrition was recommended. Yeah, just a different story. But nowadays, Anna is very... Um, active on social media she's active in her community um, especially you know when we were in Boston uh, became a huge member of that community but still comes up against the the questions um, from instructors from people who you know see themselves as as fitness professionals where do you get your protein why is meat bad for you we've obviously discussed that um, complete protein, you know, amino acid chains, all mm. of this kind of stuff. Why? I don't know. It's it's a, it's always a tricky one for me because I felt like maybe the fitness and health industry would be the ones leading this movement, but they're still into their whey protein shakes. No, um, they haven't. No, they still haven't been educated. That's the, the problem. Yeah. Yeah. The part of the part of their education is all about Perhaps it's the exercise and the fitness, but the nutritionists are really quite sadly lacking. So where do we get our protein? It might sound like a silly question. But it's one we feel well, all well, the time. Gonna, well, you'll start with uh, grain. Grains are loaded with protein. Beans, legumes, lentils, loaded with protein. Vegetables, red, yellow, green leafy, loaded with protein. Even potatoes have protein. Uh, have you ever heard of anybody who in Boston or New York went to the emergency room and said, my God, help me out. I'm protein deficient. I've been eating plants. Personally, I haven't. (laughs) I certainly have not heard of protein What's the percent of protein in in spinach? 57%. What's the percent of protein in a hamburger? 37%. And what else do you get with the hamburger as a side effect? Yeah, all all the animal protein that is really going to kind of finish you off. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And in addition to, you know, the whole protein conversation, it might be, you know... Well, there's a wonderful Harvard study uh, of health professionals. Now I think it's over 32 years. And the, in, uh, the increase in those who were uh, uh, ingesting red meat was something like an 8% more t- greater mortality. But that went up to 20% if it was hot dogs, ham, and bacon. Mm. And that's, I mean, it's a study that I think was undertaken, um, or it was released, sorry. It was a press release by the, the World Health Organization that those processed meats do, well, or they was, are a car- there, class A carcinogen. There was, uh, in October of 2015, the WHO, the World Health Organization, ama- amazing when you think about all these people from different countries, who, many of whom are raising meat, uh, who had to come to an agreement that red meat would now be classified in the same category 
for carcinogenicity as smoking cigarettes. That, you know, that fact is, um, is incredible, especially now what we know about smoking and the public's opinion and view of smoking, uh, for the large part, is negative and people don't participate in it. The meat, on the other hand, I think we're still in that stage of people are still defending it, still defending their, their choice to eat meat. Well, Walter Willett, who is the chairman of uh, public health at Harvard, I heard him talk is, on, is on record as saying that the ideal amount of red meat to eat is zero. And it doesn't get any more clear than that for the people listening at home, whether you are currently eating a whole food plant-based diet or you are not. You know, zero is the recommended mm. amount. And another thing I just wanted to to quickly speak about is the amount of protein. It's In the last couple of decades, this protein conversation has really come to a head where, for whatever reason... It's the thing that people concentrate on the most. It's always the first question. How much protein does a human being actually need? Something between 45 grams to 50 grams. Uh, but people are getting well over 100 many, in many cases. And this is such an, uh, an imbalance of this nutrient that my good friend Colin Campbell has clearly shown time and time again how uh, especially with uh, animal murine models models that when you give uh, a protein level uh, up to five percent that these tumor models can stay stable but the minute you start cranking it up over five percent then suddenly these tumors begin to explode and grow pretty profound uh, how, and the the, the protein that he was using was casein, which is the leading uh, protein in all dairy products. Yeah, there's actually, I, I read the China study. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic book, one that I've since passed on to a, a family friend. Um, there is actually a product on the market by a company that does like, you know, the protein powders. And on the label, it says casein in big, capital letters and I remember walking through uh, the office one day and a guy had a tub of it at his desk and I just read the China study and it just blew my mind that companies are marketing their product as casein and I've just read a book that says it could be mm. or maybe is the biggest carcinogen known to human beings and yeah there's definitely a disconnect there that can be frustrating at times um, but yeah, the information is readily, readily available through, you know, books that you are an author to. What are the books that, uh, that you've, uh, you've authored yourself? Well, I'm uh, particularly, uh, happy about prevent and reverse heart disease, which has, uh, I think helped a number of people who have followed its precepts because once they get away from animal-based foods and oil and sugar uh, and focus you know, on the whole grains, uh, all the different legumes, red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables and uh, sweet and white, white potatoes and fruit. And suddenly they, uh, their health is restored just uh, 
office this morning we got <laughs> we got an email from a gentleman in Germany who uh, had had a heart attack and turned it around just by through, through reading the book so we're happy that the message is so simple that even those who never see seem to be able to come to see us for counseling uh, they can do this themselves I love that part about it I love that you can go to a bookstore, you can go online and order a book mm. such as your uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease and and really take it into your own hands. Mm. That, that's the part I like about it the most is that you are able to empower yourself to, to give your life a new direction. And I'm sure mm. seeing those people just turn it around is the reason you, you continue to do this work and um, no question. And do you plan on stopping? Do you? Do well, you... I, uh, well, originally I thought when I retired from surgery, I thought that I would learn how to windsurf and play the piano. Okay. However, uh, that hasn't happened because <laughs> uh, no, I've as long as you can uh, wake up every day and and, and look forward with uh, excitement to uh, to expanding this message. Uh, it's pretty hard to think about wanting to, wanting to stop and anytime soon that's amazing it, it is really cool i mean I've, I've spoken about it before but my perception of aging has just flipped you know you can you can have a passion into into old age and and you can continue to be active and healthy which is something i'm really looking forward to myself and i've just got to take care of my own health maybe <laughs> drop a dropping this oil out of you know our diet if if it sneaks oh, yeah. into our diet we we it sounds like we better get rid of that oh yeah um oh, yeah. how about nuts well uh for patients who have heart disease i'm very cautious about nuts uh, and avocado because there's just so much uh, more saturated fat however for patients who do not have heart disease uh, i let them certainly have have nuts and avocado cool and it's just like a handful of nuts a day is that relative you know is that okay yeah yep just don't overdo it like anything else, I suppose. Now, today, there are some other things in your life that um, sound super interesting. We actually haven't attended one yet, but I'd love to hear a little bit about plant stock. I've had one friend that actually has been on the podcast, mm -hmm. Rachel Atchison. I think she has attended a couple of these events, but I'd love to hear what you guys do um, with plant stock? Well, plant stock is really uh, a <laughs> brainchild of my son, Rip. Okay. And uh, he, uh, in a couple of times a year throughout the country, will have <clears throat> a retreat for persons who are interested in enhancing their health. Actually, well, some of them may come with hypertension, they may come with diabetes, they may come with heart disease. And he usually assemb assembles what those of us in, in plant-based nutrition would consider really a, uh, a star-studded faculty. And the, the people that are looking up this over the internet recognize who those pioneers and who those stars are, and they get quite a turnout. I think the last group, they had something like 700 uh, people come when it was down in Asheville mm -hmm. at Black Mountain. Uh, it's, we've had a, he's had a several up on our farm with, in upstate New York with four or 500 people. And it's 
<clears throat> really now uh, sort of become something that people uh, look forward to on an annual basis. Uh, I happen to be happy to be one of the faculty members of this, but it's a, a an opportunity for people to really get uh, focused uh, in, an, in an intense way uh, in usually between uh, maybe a couple of day, days where they're going to get so much information that is a profound uh, benefit for their uh, well-being and their and their health. Yeah, it'd be a really cool thing to to attend and I don't know, I'd love to take my family to something like that. I think it would be a really good way for them to get that intense mm -hmm. learning experience uh, and take, you know, take some of those nuggets away with them and and really get them into the into their own life to help with you know longevity yeah. and health so i think that's a, a really cool event if anyone is able to get to it it's once a year and it's now moved to Asheville, north carolina they uh uh i don't know where the ne uh, next one i think it's going to be still at black mountain in Asheville. yeah cool cool all right then so i suppose we can start to wrap this up i think ann's Got a lunch <laughs> ready, so I'm really looking forward to Good. looking forward to that. Uh, thank you once again. I suppose one last question is that recently I I saw on I don't know if it was like a plant-based news website um, that some doctors had said something about your low-fat approach being dangerous. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, basically say why it is, is absolutely not dangerous. Well, I think that everybody, you know, has an opportunity to express their view. Yep. And we encourage that. Uh, I think what we have to do is we have to try to uh, stick strictly to the, some of the scientific aspects of this. And it's interesting that when I, I think I've mentioned before, but I'll reinforce it again, that the, uh, uh, the whole food plant-based nutrition that we uh, offer to patients uh, leaves them with no nutritional deficits at all. As a matter of fact, it is the uh, really sort of the copycat of half the planet Earth that doesn't even have these chronic diseases that we're trying to combat with this horrible Western diet. Uh, and I would just, since we've been trying this program now for over 30 years, and I would defy anybody to identify uh, any of our patients who are suffering from uh, deficiencies who are eating the spectrum of foods that we suggest. As a matter of, and as a matter of fact, it would be very a, a difficult uh, to ever have uh, our studies published in peer-reviewed scientific literature if we were injuring people. As a matter of fact, as, as I recall our la latest count, we, uh, I've now something, written something like a 15 publication on whole food plant-based nutrition that have been published in the scientific literature. So. It's kind of exciting to think that the peer-reviewed process is supporting the diet, which can absolutely not only eliminate disease, but most importantly, 
can reverse disease. Yeah, that's really well summed up. I mean, I don't think there's anything more effective um, out there right now. Whole food plant-based diet really is shown to be the most effective way. And it's not just heart disease. It's the spectrum of disease that you had, had mentioned earlier. Something's just popped into my head and it's, it's the doctors that are now starting to uh, adopt whole food plant-based lifestyles into their approach and into their practices. So are you excited that there are more doctors who... Oh, there's no question. When I, uh, in 1991, uh, when my frustration for this was uh, peaking a little bit because here we were seeing these exciting results and yet, uh, and nothing was happening in the field of cardiology. So I put together and was the director and program chairman of the first national conference on the elimination and reversal of heart disease, which was held in Tucson, Arizona, back in uh, 1991. And we had 100 people come. I thought we had an absolutely blue ribbon faculty. And, uh, but uh, afterwards, there wasn't a great deal that, <laughs> that happened. So we did it again, this time down at uh, Disney World in Epcot. This time we had 500 people attend with, uh, again, a Blue Ribbon faculty. <coughs> Not too much, uh, again, was happening, but slowly now, just in the last several years, things have really picked up. Multiple communities throughout the United States are having a, a veg fest uh, opportunities. I was recently at Denver. They had over 10,000 people at their uh, veg uh, fest. And uh, also, there are these uh, conferences that are coming all over the place suddenly. Neil Barnard has an annual one in the summer. <coughs> then there is uh, Scott Stoll and Susan Benegas, who are doing plantrition on the West Coast. And then we have the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Those last two have over thousands of physicians who have now become part of it to, to rather learn about this. So that that's a, is a very, very powerful and very positive. Yeah, I'm super, super excited for that as well because as you said, people that mm. are now entering the doctor's room, I suppose it becomes more and more likely that they're um, going to get such information. Uh, it's really important that it, that it happens in these uh, doctor's mm. rooms because people do have trust um, you know, trust in their, in their practitioner. So I'm really stoked to, to see that. It's funny that you, you mentioned 1991. I mean, I was one year old. I think you were, you were also one year old. And yeah, the fact that it took us a couple of decades later to even get the message is, I mean, I can, I can definitely see your frustration. But what I do thank you for is for firstly, you know, against, you know, any of the, the pushback you might have received, um, you know, all those decades ago where you where you started to begin and you started to, to look into to whole food plant-based diets, you pushed on, uh, you've been, you know, an amazing voice for, uh, for people who have fallen ill, people that want to prevent themselves from getting ill, and you continue to be, you really do practice what you preach and um i hope you know 
for for many many more years to come <laughs> because you know you you've been oh, yeah. an absolute pioneer you've inspired myself you've inspired Anna to to really adopt this lifestyle and um to share it with with the community and that's really the reason I'm doing this podcast so Matthew thank you thanks so much for having us you're welcome it's been a blast absolutely let's have lunch let's do it <laughs> thank you very much see you guys I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that episode and certainly have some pretty big questions to ask myself about what I'm putting into my body on a regular basis. Thanks again to Dr. Esselstyn for giving up his time during the holidays to record. It was an amazing experience to sit down with someone who has just about single-handedly been the reason for my switch to eating a diet free from animals almost three years ago now and who is seen as such an inspiring leader in our movement. As always, if you have any questions about this week's show or any of my previous episodes, please reach out to me on Instagram at VegTalk. That is V-E-D-G-E-T-A-L-K. I absolutely love hearing from you all. If you do have a few minutes after listening to the show, there are a couple of things that can really help these conversations reach more people around the world. Sharing the episode on Instagram is extremely helpful. We can use the power of social media to help spread such important messages such as the information Dr. Esselstyn has given us today. Secondly, leaving a review and a rating for the show is insanely helpful and helps to reach more people around the world. Be sure to stick around for next week's podcast with Caitlin Shoemaker, the awesome woman behind the food blog From My Bowl. We recorded the podcast in the van during our stay in Portland, Oregon and had an awesome time. See you next week, guys. Catch you later.